you're traveling across America, you might, in the heat of the late morning, at the edge of a large city or an extensive forest, come across a large, hand-painted sign. It will only be there if you aren't in a hurry. You will only notice it if you have no place in particular you need to be. The sign features one word, and no matter your history with the type of entertainment it advertises, you will be intrigued. If you are lucky, you will continue on thinking a sign that old couldn't refer to something that still exists. Unfortunately, it still does, but only if you aren't looking for it. You're following a sign marked Zoo. Episode 6, On a Pale Moose. Hey, Michaela. Just touching base. Again. Mom was super pissed you missed Thanksgiving. I thought you would call, but guess not. I told her that they put you on a very important case and that you couldn't do anything about it, but I don't think she cares. Look, you don't have to call me back, but call mom, okay? I love you. Bye. Message 7 of 14. If you would like to delete this message, press 7. Michaela, November 26th, 2018. It's been a long weekend. I reached out some feelers and got a few strange cases sent my way. Well, I say sent my way. I have a few friends left here in response and in science and technology. Told them to keep an eye out for things. I requested this one saying it was connected to a cold case I found in Massachusetts. I don't know, something about the... Interstate transportation of fireworks or some crock. Case number 95-HQ-8513. Incident date, February 13th, 1986. Filing date, March 3rd, 1986. Reporting agent, Victor Gill. Witnesses, Adam Schaefer and Seth Jones. Agents were dispatched at 0300 to pick up a creature from a laboratory in Boston, Massachusetts. I was instructed to pick up Dr. K. Grimes on my way there, as this particular sort of investigation fell directly under her purview. We were handed a preliminary report to review on the way. The facts gained from that report are The creature, whatever it had been, was seen down on the side of the road by a local couple in Dover, Massachusetts, roughly 45 minutes outside of Boston. They stopped to check to make sure the creature, which they believed was a dog, was not injured. That dog attacked one of the men, Seth Jones, 
and started clawing at him around his face and neck. His partner, Adam Schaefer, called 911 and tried to dislodge the creature, managing to pull it off and restrain it before it did any serious damage. 911 was called at this time. Animal control, police, and ambulances were all dispatched. Animal control was uncertain what to do with the creature and passed it on to law enforcement who were also stumped on the matter. They contacted the bureau who instructed them to put it in quarantine until agents could get there. The creature was taken to a laboratory at Northeastern University for holding. The creature is described in the report as being small, pale orange in color, with a large head and spindly body. <sighs> at this time, Seth Jones is doing fine except for some scratches and bruising. He is being treated for and vaccinated against a number of ailments that could spring up as the result of his attack. Seth Jones and Adam Schaefer are both being held at Boston Medical Center for further observation and questioning. Almost immediately upon arriving, Dr. Grimes and I found ourselves being put into protective equipment and ushered into the room where the thing was being held. The preliminary report had described it pretty accurately, but failed to mention the large, glowing eyes as well as the fact that it had no visible mouth. We watched in awe for a few moments as the little thing paced around in its cage, sometimes standing upright and sometimes on all fours. Dr. Grimes immediately got to work trying to identify it. She started by reaching in and sedating the thing, which we were now labeling as Subject 13709. It took more than twice the amount of sedative she thought it would to make the subject sleep, and it tried to pull her hand off the whole time it was in the cage. Once Subject 13709 was under, Dr. Grimes weighed it and measured every part of it before taking samples of blood and skin tissue. Dr. Grimes went to study the samples she had taken while I went to meet with the witnesses. Adam Schaefer was in the waiting room while his partner was being treated and was more than willing to recount the incident to me. According to him, they had been driving home from a party and saw the eyes glinting down by the side of the road and thought, at first glance, what they were seeing was a dog. As it was not moving at all or running at the sight of their headlights, they were concerned that it might be injured and stopped to check on it. Mr. Schaefer stated that this is when Mr. Jones leaned over and the thing in the ditch lunged at him, leaping about five feet into the air to attach to his face. Adam Schaefer, seeing his partner was in danger, jumped into action and wrangled the clawing, angry creature away, pinning its limbs in order to keep it until first responders were on the scene. He felt that it would be best to have the creature in custody in case Seth Jones fell ill so that we might know what he had come down with. Seth Jones was barely conscious when I stepped in to speak with him, but he gave me the same story. I wished him well and headed back to see what Grimes had found. I arrived back at the lab to find her in a heated discussion with the zoology department personnel working alongside her in the lab. Dr. Grimes felt that the subject, whatever it was, would be able to be more thoroughly and effectively studied via autopsy. She believed that whatever the subject's origins, it could be scientifically significant, and therefore we should gather everything we could. I backed Dr. Grimes. But, as the little thing came slowly back to consciousness and tried to take in its surroundings, it started looking very distressed, frightened even. I did not feel at all good about what we were considering doing, so I recommended we take it to Grimes' superiors to make the final call. We phoned Dr. Willard Clay, head of her department, and let him in on our conundrum. 
He asked that we fax over the data we had gathered for him to review, and he would contact us with a final decision on the matter. Hours later, we received a call from Dr. Clay, who instructed us to stay put and do nothing else with Subject 13709. We were informed that he had personally dispatched someone more qualified to deal with the matter, who would be with us at any moment. This was, to say the least, very confusing. I had been assured the department Dr. Grimes and Dr. Clay worked for was the most appropriate and well-trained in the United States to handle this particular sort of investigation. Within the half hour, we had our answer on who would be collecting the subject. A man in a tan trench coat and gray hat strode in like he owned the place. I don't remember very many specifics about him, just that he was very odd. His clothing choices came straight out of the 40s rather than the standard styles men wear today. I also recall finding it very odd that it was now evening and we were inside, but he was still wearing sunglasses. When the man spoke, it was the strangest sound. He managed to have both a deep, rumbling voice, and at the same time, a rather high-pitched voice, almost feminine in nature. As previously stated, the details of our meeting are strangely hazy, but I do recall him assuring us that Dr. Clay had sent him to collect Subject 13709, and that he had asked us to keep this encounter very hushed. We agreed that this was for the best, and that was it. The man in the hat put the subject in a small crate he brought with him, and left. Dr. Grimes and myself were perfectly content with that, and drove back to the motel to sleep. We left Boston bright and early the next morning. The official story given to Mr. Jones and Mr. Schaefer is that what they encountered was a sick raccoon, but that its ailment should not be passed on to humans. However, Seth Jones should still follow up with a doctor in the next week or so, to be sure. They happily accepted this explanation, with no further questions. I do not know what it was we were charged with investigating that night nor do I know who it was passed along to, but I am relieved to be free of the burden of it all the same. I have attached all applicable data to this report and can only hope that what I have provided is sufficient. Attached, full report of Dr. K. Grimes, statements of Adam Schaefer and Seth Jones, evidence bag containing samples collected, all applicable expense receipts and reports. This is so much exactly what I've been reading that I almost didn't even give it a second glance. Monster, guy in the hat, FBI agents acting like total dumbasses. But something about Dr. Grimes stuck in my head and I looked her up. I looked her up because reading this, I couldn't really tell if she was in response or an S&T. But turns out, no, she's in national security. National security. So her boss was in national security too. And when presented with this... thing? He calls in that damned red-eyed bastard. Why? Why hand over something like this? Is this guy in the FBI? Is there an unexplained case he doesn't have his creepy little fingers in? Is that why I can't find out what's going on? At this point, I'm beginning to think that Lydia was right. Maybe there is a conspiracy. A criminal conspiracy to cover up this guy's identity and what the hell he's doing. FBI agents do not hand over evidence to civilians in fedoras and trench coats. And Lydia was fired. Did she actually get too close to figuring this out? Did he sick the dogs on her? Did internal affairs... Internal affairs. Beckett. He wasn't warning me, he was threatening me. That son of a bitch. 
Okay. Okay, so this has to be something I get incontrovertible proof of. I have to be able to take this to the FBI director. Or go full Pentagon papers with. And I need people in the bureau and out. I need help. I need... Uh, I need a cryptozoologist. I need Titanium Violet. Okay, I have her website. I bet there's a... Yep, here. Contact web manager. Okay. And send. I guess that'll have to do. If she's interested, the ball's in her court. What's this? Oh, she has a new article up. About the... The fucking what? What is the... <laughs> The Spectacular Spectral Moose of Maine by Titanium Violet. I hope all of my readers had a great Thanksgiving and are ready to face the incoming holiday season. I know I had a very satisfying break. Ugh, maybe that's not a good line. I spent it visiting family up in Augusta, Maine, and figured while I was up that way, I may as well extend my trip so I could spend some time searching for the ghost moose. I've heard so much about it and have never caught a glimpse. This was my perfect opportunity. Before coming up here for a visit, I did some further research and made a map of places the ghost moose had been spotted previously. It seemed best to begin my hunt in one of those areas. After a few pleasant days with my grandmother and aunts, it was time to get started. With just some basic gear and my phone for capturing evidence, I set off into the woods. I roamed the forest for hours before making camp, but found no trace of any non-typical creatures. I stayed awake late into the night to watch and wait for something to happen. I had hoped to catch a glimpse, but no such luck. I decided the next morning to move my camp closer to the river and try that vantage point. Looking around the area, I did find tracks that could definitely be moose, but they also could be just from a regular brown moose. I didn't want to get my hopes up. I went another full day, and that night, and nothing. Not a trace. Just some of the regular, expected wildlife. I was on my third day and beginning to feel like giving up. Maybe there was no ghost moose. Maybe I was just in the wrong place. Either way, I was losing hope. I decided to stay one more night and leave in the morning. I am so happy I decided to stay for that one last night. Around 2 a.m., just as I was about to go to sleep, I saw a bright green-blue glow under the surface of the water, maybe 50 yards up the river. Grabbing my phone, I took off toward it, and that's when I saw him emerge. Ghostly white, translucent, with a faint greenish-blue glow around him. He calmly strode out of the water and up on the bank toward me. He was larger than any moose I had ever seen, and more spectacular by far. Each antler on its own was longer than I am tall. He towered above me, fearsome and intimidating, but at the same time with a gentle, calming aura about him. I slowly reached out my hand to touch him. I was expecting fur and flesh, or even nothing at all, just for my hand to go through the air. But what I got was so much stranger. While this creature appeared, from a distance, to be covered in fur, 
After touching him, I noticed it was actually many small rubbery protrusions covering his skin in a very similar way. The skin of the nose seemed to have a more smooth, silicone-like texture than other animals. I was not able to feel the antlers, unfortunately, but I would be willing to guess that they felt different than is commonly expected as well. I took a step back and looked at him fully, overwhelmed and disbelieving. I couldn't contain myself any longer and knew this had to be documented. When I took out my phone to snap a few photos, his attitude changed entirely like he knew exactly what I was doing. His eyes narrowed slightly and he pulled back his lips, showing his very neat and perfectly white teeth. Took my phone between them gently before crunching down once and dropping my phone to the ground. Panic started welling up in my chest and every part of me was screaming out, RUN! Afraid of ending up like the pile of glass and plastic at my feet. It was almost like the creature before me could sense my fear. He took a step forward, bent at the knees to lay down, and rested his large head on my shoulder, almost as if to reassure me that he was a friend, not a threat. We just stood there for a while like that. Must have been half an hour at least. Just this large, mysterious creature and myself in a peaceful moment of quiet friendship. After a time, he just lifted his head before standing and striding off into the woods, disappearing quickly into the trees. I got in my car and left that night. I got the encounter I came out here for and suddenly felt like an intruder in this place. I have met such strange creatures and at this point, it would seem like I am used to them. But this one was something entirely different. It was touching, friendly. There are so many mysterious things on this planet that we do not understand. And sometimes our fear makes us forget that those creatures are worthy of empathy and love as well. Go out into the woods, make friends with your local cryptid. Who have I gotten involved with? Hello, Titanium Violet? Please call me Titanium. Um, who are you? My name is A- Michaela. I'm wanting to know something. Is it real? Oh hell no, I know it's real. I want to know who he is. He who? The man in the charcoal hat. The butterfly. Mr. Knight. That red-eyed bastard. Interesting topic. Well, we in the Enigma Collective think he's a G-man. Nope. Too easy. Too clean. I can identify a spook. This guy is different. Wait, we in the what collective? The Enigma Collective. A circle of connected, free-thinking individuals trying to get to the truth of what's going on in the highest echelons of our government. Ah, your D&D group. Do you talk to them with this cheesy 90s war games audio filter too? Look, I'm protecting my identity. You never know what crazy shit they'll try to bring you in on. And if you're going to insult me, why the hell did it sound like you needed my help? You're right. I'm sorry, I just... I don't know how to talk to somebody about this. I've built my career on figuring out the things other people can't. But this guy, the zoo sign... 
every answer is just a dozen more questions. The zoo sign. You know about the sign? Yeah, that's what I first saw. <laughs> okay, this isn't a prank. You're for fucking real. Yeah, no shit I'm for real. An FBI agent doesn't just stake their whole career on speculation. You're an FBI agent. Yes, and you're not in any trouble. I... I need help figuring out what's going on. I need an outside consultant. Okay, tell you what. If you're for real, then you'll be able to get access to FBI files. Oh, hold on a minute. I'm not going to send you classified information. No, but you can confirm what I already know is there. There's a guy, a, a scientist, named Dr. Benton Von Zant. His name came up within the collective a lot, and then he died about a decade ago. We lost a good lead. Your bureau confiscated all of his papers and shit. If there's anybody in the world that had an idea what was going on with that sign and the man in the charcoal hat, it was Dr. Van Zandt. I want you to find his research. It should be in your spooky vault or something. We do not have a spooky vault. <laughs> So, I just got back from the spooky vault, which is real, but not a vault where we keep spooky stuff. It's just an old file room in the basement with bad lighting. And there, about three quarters of the way back, I found a heaping stack of evidence boxes related to some closed estate case in Spokane, and tagged with the strangest collection of warnings I've seen. Felix said I had to go through the proper channels and he'd send me the boxes. I filled out the paperwork, but while he wasn't looking, I grabbed this. It's a piece of evidence, some research paper on some weird creature. Asset, Lingua Sacro Gynagrisia, Siren. Classification 9, Supernatural Entity. Containment Recommendation 2, with special precautions, noise-canceling air protection. Special Exhibit Needs, Humidity above 60% for comfort, pool at least six feet deep, combine land slash water exhibit. A new asset has been procured. It's currently in quarantine in the Colorado safe house and we are awaiting a local manifestation of the anchor. I recommend an immediate overhaul of exhibit space 18, which will work perfectly with the following modifications. One, using the auxiliary climate control from exhibit three. Two, changing the pumping system over to salt water. 3. Removing the internal emergency escape hatch. 4. Changing out the straw nest and rubber toys for a bed and reclining couch. 5. Adding in a redundancy to the sound dampening system. 6. Staffing security near the enclosure with... with lesbians, or women born in a landlocked country. The creature responds to the name Doria, which was the name it had assumed before its acquisition. The creature's general appearance is, from a distance, that of a young woman with sun-bleached blonde hair dressed in a long flowing dress of seafoam green. It has olive skin and moves delicately. It has a tendency to avoid direct sunlight and has developed methods of appearing not obvious about its aversion. Upon closer inspection, which is difficult to say the least, Doria isn't very pretty. In fact, it isn't even human. 
Its eyes are sunken and do not feature sclera. Its pupils are squarish, and its jawbone is comprised of a series of different bones. There is a seam that runs down its forehead, between its eyes, down the length of its sharp nose, down its lips, and its chin. I do not know, nor do I want to know, if or why it would open. Its hair is made up of prehensile, fleshy tendrils that pleat and lay over each other in flaps. All in all, its head is something more similar to a squid than a human head. Our veterinarian has noted several other strange features. First, it only has four pairs of ribs. It has three lungs, and they can work in a circular rhythm allowing continuous exhalation. It has four sets of vocal cords. Its bones are hollow, nearly avian. Its dress is actually a continuous covering of small, vibrant, watertight feathers. It must be kept very damp, and as such, its feet, which are wide and webbed when not curled up to approximate human feet, often leave wet prints on the ground. The creature seems to have developed over hundreds of generations to appear as close to human as possible without deterring its own specialized biology. The creature is not too unlike the Linguifoda gynahibernia, close enough that it must have a common ancestor. I would not be surprised to have to recategorize this little beauty one day soon after a more thorough examination. Compared to the specimens we gathered in 97, it is currently under sedation, requiring 3.5 milliliters of acepromazine, ACP, to keep it under. The greatest issue to safe containment is its voice. It uses a long, haunting cry that specifically targets key sections of the brain that disrupt the reasoning capability of the victim, essentially degrading the target's ability to discern truth from fiction. This focused sound potential is masked by the natural response a person has while listening to music. This, as previously mentioned, is similar to the tactic used by Linguifoda gynahibernia. However, their more aggressive and less luring style uses the same sympathetic vibration capability, but to completely disable the target by rendering them brain dead. Based upon our research before containment, the siren, as the boys called it, preferred to gather large groups of people, entrance them with its voice, and then feast at its leisure on the stunned crowd. Lingua sacro gynagricia is also more parasitic than full carnivorous. It drains the blood of victims, though usually not enough to kill. The method of the blood draining has yet to be discovered, and must be part of a complete investigation into the asset's capabilities by Dr. Embriety. There appear to be sucker-like welts on its victims' bodies about the neck, something similar to the wounds delivered by a vampire squid. The attacks leave its victims lightheaded and confused for several days if not properly treated. We've sent blood samples to toxicology and virology to see if there's any poison or parasitic infestation accompanying the attacks. This particular asset was discovered in 1999, after the Irish folk music craze began to die down. This asset, Doria, had been masquerading as a European folk singer and had gone completely unnoticed by the unblinking eyes in the wave of Lord of the Dance and Enya knockoffs that persisted in the late 1990s. We've been able to track 147 victims, including 11 deaths, making it, by my count, the ninth most deadly asset we have currently contained. That is, if we consider the Wendigo contained. Always happy to get another asset in the top 10. We've included a recording of the song it sang just before we engaged the target, saving the lives of 32 bar patrons of the Three-Finned Turtle in Cannon Beach, Oregon. 
Post-recording studies show that the illusory effect of the music is removed by recording the song in a dynamic range of less than 123 decibels. I'm very happy we were able to exercise our capability and bring in this particular asset under the mandate. Forward the exhibit habitat request to Amos. Dr. Benton Van Zant. Everything I know tells me that what I just read is a lot of crap. It looks official, but it's some kind of internet hoax. Some rejected Twilight Zone manuscript. But it mentioned Dr. Umbriety. It mentioned Amos. It's... I have this feeling like I've got this almost figured out, but every time I try and grasp it, it just slips away. It came with a recording on audio cassette. I wonder if somebody else records their notes like I do. Maybe they have an idea of what's going on. Whose play makes the waves 
the daughter who loves all you miss. She hoards your losses, your lover she keeps. A widow, you're made by her kiss. So worry, young ladies, mothers and brides. Your men bound to her emotion. I own their hearts and I bargain their lives. For I am the girl of the ocean. Ugh, okay, that kind of hurt like the fillings in my teeth are vibrating I okay maybe that tape wasn't 100% safe Dr. Van Zant MD wait was he an MD that might hold on he had it on the paper here DVM doctor of veterinary medicine wait wait oh fuck it's been there the whole time they're actually running a zoo. Zoo was created by C.J. Hausch, Connie Kitts, and Cody Phillips. The voice of Michaela Kespar is Connie Kitts. The voice of Katie Kespar is Cody Phillips. The voice of Titanium Violet is Lucille Valentine. Original music by Nathan Gandy. Thank you to our patrons, Spooklight sponsors Yzma Hecht and Lucille Valentine, and Bigfoot benefactors Paul Matteo and Matthew Statton. Follow us on Twitter at ZooPodcast. We can't steal your wallet physically, but we would like to steal it digitally. Please donate to patreon.com slash zoopodcast. Zoo fact. While the Ogopogo does have a fondness for Oreo cookies, visitors are discouraged from feeding it any sweets at all. As the Ogopogo gets irritable and gets what our veterinarian describes as a tummy ache. The Ogopogo's diet consists of fish, marine mammals such as otters, and drunk fishermen. And if you go swimming with bow-legged women, I might steal your faint heart away.